Hello, everyone. I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to a brand new episode of High Jinx with me, Jinx Monsoon. <laughs> Today, my guest is a fellow buxom, brassy, body, bodacious, beautiful redhead. I don't know why I used all those bees, all that bee alliteration to introduce redhead. Anyway... <laughs> B, 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 R. Anyway, uh, my guest is Lisa Ann Walter. You might know her from Abbott Elementary. You might know her from The Parent Trap. Uh, you might know her from her stand-up career or her years on the theatrical stage in New York. However you know her, she's just so fantastic. And my gosh, this conversation between the two of us, we talk about what's going on in the country. We talk about her work on Abbott Elementary. We talk about her killer fashion at the award season this year. But we also just talk like a couple of old gal pals. And that's what I love about hijinks. So buckle up, hunker down, and sink your teeth into some brand new hijinks. M. Oh. M. Mom! Hello everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today we are joined by actress, comedian, and producer, Lisa Ann Walter. Hi Lisa Ann. Hi Jinx. Um, I have to, I, a producer, um, I ended on producer, but I should also say, uh, writer, author, you yeah. have a best-selling book as well. Sorry that that didn't make the intro list. That's How okay. you doing? There's so many things. There's so many job titles one must have as one ages in Hollywood to keep <laughs> in the bills for all of, the, all of the, the children that one has popped out of one's vagina. <laughs> Um, my my was... the car. <laughs> it sounds like it runs in the family, but we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> um, my listeners will probably best know you right now um, in your role on Abbott Elementary. Yeah. I, 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 never, I never know how to pronounce your character's last name. <laughs> will you say it for me? Melissa Shimenti. Shimenti. Yeah. I always... <laughs> I always feel like it's going to come out of my mouth wrong and I always avoid it. Yeah, that's okay. You know, even as a, um, an Italian-American myself, a Sicilian-American, when they first told me the name, I was trying to think of Sicilians that I knew that had, you know, because usually it's a two, in Sicilian last names, you can always tell a Paisan because it's mm -hmm. always like Rossi, Rizzo, Russo, you know, <laughs> pa Pazzo. Like, it's always two syllables ending in a vowel. So, Shimenti, I was like, well, do I say Scamenti? No, it's mm -hmm. a soft C-H. So, I was like, all right, you know, whatever. I never heard it, but I'm going to believe you. 
I also, I cannot for the life of me remember the name of the movie, but I was channel surfing the other day and I stopped on a movie and at one point you were some guy's hot girlfriend, but then you were like trying to kill the main characters and you were driving a car oh, after oh, them. Oh, Killers. It's called Killers. Killers. Yeah. Yeah, that's a um, wild, that was a wild story about getting that role. That was crazy. If you want you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, that's a good description. It's a crazy, I was somebody's girlfriend. Not really, I was hitting on him. I was hitting on Ashton Kutcher. And he's Ashton married, Kutcher. He's married to Katherine Heigl. Um, but when I first auditioned for it, so it's a guy, the, the loose storyline is he's a spy, like a real mm -hmm. Bond type. And he meets her like in the south of France and she's on vacation with her parents, played by Catherine O'Hara and Tom Selleck. And mm -hmm. you come to find out later, Tom Selleck is like ex-CIA. But anyway, he's like trying to get out of the business of being a spy. And so he marries her and has like a regular guy job in Atlanta or somewhere. And then it turns out later that they're trying to kill him because he knows too much. So he has to fight him back and she goes, runs around with him. And there's all these people trying to kill him. They, they, they put the hit out on him. Yeah. So I'm, I'm one of the assassins. <laughs> But uh, so what was wild is when I first auditioned for the role, it was to play a character of like an annoying neighbor. Because you don't know in this in this world that he's in who's trying to get him. You have no idea. So there's this annoying neighbor that keeps coming over, played by Mary Birdsong. And when I auditioned, that was the role I auditioned for. I went in, did a video, left. Then I heard I got the job. And I was like, yay, go to Atlanta for three weeks or whatever. <laughs> And I went in to look at the wardrobe. They sent me a script and I said, oh, they changed my name from Mrs. Kravitz or whoever she was to, <laughs> you know, whatever, a Mrs. Knowing Neighbor to Olivia. And I went, oh, they gave me a first name. That's cute. I went in, I saw the wardrobe. Jinx, when I tell you it was every piece of hoeiness, it was <laughs> giant platform shoes, super short skirts. You know, push up, basically my wardrobe, like from home. <laughs> and so I looked at it and I stopped at the doorway when I literally from across the room, I saw what was hanging on the racks and I went, holy shit, I'm the cougar assassin. Uh. And they were like, yeah, you're Olivia. And I was like, I had never seen that role. I didn't know that. They, <laughs> I knew that when I went in for the audition that I was wearing a really cute little BCBG like tracksuit with a push-up <laughs> bra and, and the girls were out. But I they gave me that job and uh, and that's what I got to play. And never in my life at that point had I played anything like it. And I got to stunt drive that Mustang, shoot a clock. It was <laughs> so much fun. So I was, I lucked out. Got to play the I, Lynch. I cannot, you know, I, I that's the kind of stuff like, Whatever the movie is, you know, um, I watched, as I was listening to you describe the premise, I realized I watched like the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> I just got I don't think I well, you ever saw the title of it. Yeah, you don't know when you come in on it, like what else might have happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a very entertaining film and plenty of those like movie stunts that 
I just have to imagine are the most fun to do. So far in my acting career, everything's been pretty true to my life, you know? Yeah. I haven't been rigged up to fly or anything yet. That's I've never coming. jumped away from an explosion it's, or anything. It's all so. coming. I tell you what, <laughs> if anybody got into the getup that you have to wear for you know, the stage show, let somebody put on a corset that you have to wear and tell me that's not a stunt. <laughs> stunt Thank mama. you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. You never know what's coming. That's the weird thing about our career is that you can say, oh, I know what they look for me to do. I, I mm -hmm. have a pretty good idea of what I am in their minds. But you don't know that you're going to walk into a room and all of a sudden they're like going, yeah. And now today you get in the car and we're going to T-bone it. Don't worry. Start <laughs> on the chain. We're not really hitting you. But they are. They're hitting you with another car. And you're just going to go, okay, don't you have professionals to do this kind of thing? But then I tell you, here's the truth. You do it once and you go, I want to go again. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. What a fun, weird job it is, you know? I I, I love thinking about, I, I, I love remarking on how weird a job being an actor is or a drag queen or a drag queen who acts. It's just like, you know, when you boil it down and you say those kind of things, like today I'm going to get T-boned by another car, <laughs> maybe twice. Yeah, um, if I'm lucky. <laughs> there's another aspect um, to the career, uh, which is award season. Uh -huh. And I'm just, I just got to say, you know, I don't follow fashion much. I just am someone who I look at a dress and I'm like, I like that or I don't like that, but I don't know why I like it or what went into the, you know, there's just fashion I like and fashion I don't like. Agree. Your Agreed. fashion, <laughs> your fashion has been so incredible. Both you and Cheryl Lee Ralph, who I've been following the most um, because she's been, you know, both of you have been delivering speech after speech yeah. and at yeah, a really Cheryl's, pivotal time. Cheryl's been like the, the, the girl, the it girl for award shows this year. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Um, and you both you. have looked stunning. Every every time I see something come up, you've both looked stunning. What goes into your decision making for your fashion? And um, what was award season like for you this year? <laughs> okay, so two incredibly good questions that nobody but you would think to ask. So thank you. <laughs> um, the, the fact is that I, I view fashion much like you described. I know that there are things I, I had a stylist that came over and by the way, she, she picked some really pretty things and, you know, did, did some great looks for me, but she brought over suits that were being shown this year. That's what they're saying. That's what's being shown this year. Yeah. This is what is on Vogue this year, but they're uh, like the giant, like in my David Byrne from the eighties, giant jacket. <laughs> and like that works on a supermodel that works on somebody incredibly tall and incredibly thin. It doesn't work on me. It just looks like I'm a short, uh, swarthy, um, <laughs> ethnic type with big, fat, ethnic hips wearing like grandpa's jacket. It just doesn't work. I need a nipped waist. I need, you know, more of a, a 50 silhouette, you know, either a big ball gown skirt or something incredibly form fitting. And the people that understand what I'm doing. Like I went to the Golden Globes in a in a gray velvet number with a mm -hmm. like it was kind of a medium gunmetal gray with a big silver gray 
grow green bow like over the boots. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then I had this like white fur that actually Tony. I remember this post. I mean, Tony, you... um, Dustin's boyfriend, Tony styled it for me. Do you remember that look? I remember this post, yeah, because um, you posted uh, to mention that it was faux fur, ethically yeah. sourced faux fur, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. and you look stunning. And I think, Thank and you. this is one of the looks that I was like, see, it's not just the red hair. We have similarities in lots of ways. Yes, yes that's 100% true. And as I see what you put it on when you're out in the world and when you're doing your stage shows, it's all incredibly sort of old Hollywood form-fitting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that it's fashion. It's it's all fashion. But it isn't an, a slave to a, a look. You can put it on a piece that's modern, like the shape of that fur was both a throwback to a 40s fur but it's right now it's modern so and i will tell you who the first person to stop me on that carpet was it was actually a great carpet i was i fit right in the first person (laughs) to stop me was billy porter and Mm. this porter turned around and saw me step out of limo and just did this (gasps) (laughs) and i was like i know i have one Absolutely. That's the response you want. (laughs) I'm exactly right. So I think part of it is knowing what you, what you, you can look, uh, what your look is as a body, as a person. And I've shopped for long enough to know when I pick it up on the hanger and I feel the fabric, my, my grandfather, my mother's father was the support of his 11 brothers and sisters in New York during the depression And he went to his first job. First job was shining shoes on the Staten Island Ferry. His next job was uh, a tool and dye company that dyed very expensive fabrics, like velvet, real velvet, Mm. like cotton velvet and Mm. and satins and silks. And my mother taught me what good fabric was from the time I was a baby. You know, like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's not real velvet. That's polyester. This is what (laughs) it's supposed to look like. So I have a real affinity for... Uh, looking at a garment and saying, I know what that's going to look like on my body. The one that I didn't know was, was it golden? Was it Critics Choice? The blue dress. Oh, yeah. Again, Tony, his boyfriend, <laughs> found this dress for me. This company, Zhivago, was killing it for me. And I looked at it and went, there's no way I'm going to fit in that. It was this wide. Uh-huh. When I put it on, yes, it was that wide, but it was stretch. And yeah. everything that was popping out looked good. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like the girls were coming out in the middle and I was like, yeah, I'm going to brave out. Just keep my shoulders pushed back all night long. <laughs> but you know what? Even if you have a nip slip these days, it only helps your <laughs> Nobody cares. So I think part of it is part of the look with Cheryl too. She was the one who pushed me. No black, wear color. Girl, you must have color. <laughs> and not blend. You, mm. you must pop. So I, I did a lot of color and and I let myself, um, I just let myself look like I wanted to look. Sometimes it's modern, you know, with straight hair, mm-hmm. and center part and a, and a poofed crown. And sometimes it's real side part, glam, old Hollywood. And you just kind of have to have an idea of what you want to. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of old Hollywood glamour. I mean, yeah. all of the bio books that I have on, on my shelves are you know, Marilyn and Rita Hayworth and Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. I mean, I just have all of the books. So I, yeah, so that's, I think what I, what I do. You know, it's a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah. But like a lot of what you're talking about makes so 
much sense of like, okay, so fashion is ever shifting, mm-hmm. but almost always for for decades and decades has favored, you know, the very thin. Yes. And the conversation about body positivity and fashion has been going on for some time now, but it has been very, very limiting and very, very much like homogenized. Like if you don't fit into the, uh, like, if you don't fit into these sizes, then this part of the fashion world was kind of cut off to you. 100% you're right. Yeah. And so now that they are actually embracing different body types and different silhouettes, I think there's like, yes, there's the current fashion, but there's something to be said for timeless fashion. And what you're talking about showing off your body the way you feel comfortable showing it off and the way you know that looks good. And um, yeah, I've been talking nonstop about how grateful I am that right now high-waisted, wide-legged pants are in because that's what looks best on my body. And it's what's making me feel the most confident in myself. It's got me wearing color again because I'm like, I used to only wear black because I didn't want to like draw attention to me. Luckily, (laughs) there's this thing right now that's in fashion and I have bought, I'm telling you, Lisanne, every wide-legged, high-waisted pair of pants I can find. You're absolutely right. And it'll be my look for forever. (laughs) For for me with that, it's like, if I compare it with the jacket that shows my waist, right, Mm -hmm. you take it in on the waist and then everything else works. And I can wear my giant uh, Versace boots with the quadruple, you know, or triple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quadruple, that's Gucci. But the big, big <laughs> platform. And then it elongates the silhouette. And I feel totally. like bucks. But you're absolutely right about the designer. Look, there are a couple that we always knew. We girls that were shaped like girls. And remember, I'm a white girl growing up in D.C. I had plenty of my friends telling me, your figure's great. And I'm looking back at the pictures of how I looked. And it was mm-hmm. it was hourglass. It was yeah. really shapely. And I was taught to be self-loathing about my figure because it wasn't what the skinny white women on TV looked like. It didn't mm-hmm. look like Cheryl Teagues and Shelly, all these Charlie's Angels that were running around that, you know, on the cocaine and white wine diet. <laughs> and I just, I wasn't built like that. My people aren't built like that. But we were all starving ourselves trying to look like that. And mm-hmm. I think now, thank God, it started to swing in, in another direction. And not that people can't be thin, but that you should embrace what your body type is. Cheryl was really instrumental in helping to remind me of that. I mean, it's stuff that I knew. I wrote a lot about that in my book in 2011. Um, The best thing about my ass is that it's behind me. (laughs) And the rest of that line is, and I don't have to look at it all the time. But (laughs) but the self-loathing in particular about my butt, which is Sicilian. Yeah. AKA, that's African. Right. Mm. The fact that it is high and round and bubble is mm-hmm. part of my DNA. And yeah. yet we are taught to hate some of that. And there were some designers that were that were designing towards it or at least to include that look like Kevin Hall. And now Christian Siriano is doing some looks for um, all all shapes, like even the samples that they'll send out at award show will be up to, you know, like 20, 22. But they'll only do like three of them. So I was late. I had to tell my my friend Harvey Gillian, do you know him? 
from what we Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, I know, Harvey. Harvey's my boy. Every time I see him at an award show, we have to do a selfie. Uh, every uh, it's his, it's he's the sweetest. sweetest. He's the sweetest. And he uh, he loves old Hollywood, too. Yes. Uh, we were doing a uh, we were doing a convention. And every time we passed each other, he'd give me some kind of Betty Davis-esque line. Like, oh, you again. <laughs> like, oh, my God. That's hilarious. Such he's a sweetheart. Yeah. yeah. And he did a little collab with Siriano because he said yeah. he, Siriano was not dressing for larger men. And mm. so they put a look together. I just think it's all so important and so fantastic. And it, it supports people being the best version of themselves. And, and I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. I want to um, get back to award season because this was a really special award season overall. Abbott Elementary continues to be amazing. You continue to be amazing on it. But overall, um, with there was such a celebration of strong, talented women, um, women who were once referred to as women of a certain age. Um, there yeah. is a renaissance. Seniors. <laughs> there, there's been a renaissance of the celebration of... Um, Grown-ass women. Is mature, yeah, grown-ass grown women. That's women. perfect. Um, and, and you are riding that wave. You are part of that wave. Yeah. So what was award season like for you this year? Well, listen, every single time there was an opportunity for me to be with my cast and celebrate what Quinta Brunson has done, what she's put together, she is mm -hmm. the brainchild. She's the, the wonderkind. She's the one who not only understood, and I give her so much credit for this, not only understood that this was an underserved community, underserved uh, population that she could write about these people doing a wonderful thing. There's, I told her when we shot the pilot, there is nothing these people can do that you don't root for them. That mm -hmm. my character can go rob places. Nobody cares. <laughs> it's, for the, it's for the kids. And by the way, it fell off the truck. Let's just be clear. Um, <laughs> but she put together this amazing show, and the cast was was really important. The fact mm -hmm. that she put Cheryl and I together, not just best friends that have been working together for decades and know all the secrets. And, you know, I always say a, a best girlfriend is, a best friend will, will uh, what was it? Never mind. I forgot what I was going to say. You can cut that part out. <laughs> oh, I know what it was. A best friend uh -huh. will help you move. A real best BFF girlfriend will help you move a body. So that's what it is. <laughs> I think I remembered it. Um, but that's who we are together. And usually on these TV shows, there'll be one character that's like that, like the, the sassy mm -hmm. older woman. And mm -hmm. if you think about it, really since Golden Girls, you, you haven't seen friends that are both older than 50, that mm -hmm. are both very disparate points of view and personalities, but mm -hmm. will do anything for each other, work wives, ride or dies. And, and they're both that age. They don't, write it like that for women often on uh, in anything, in television or movies, which I could find bizarre because if there's any group that you see hanging out together, it's women in their 50s, 60s, 70s. First of all, men die. 
and women are hanging out with each other and spend the rest of their lives putting on red hats and doing hilarious <laughs> adventures together, right? So I'm like, that that makes sense to me that yeah. these people are really in a in a in a best friend love affair with each other and were, are will accept other people. Other people yeah. can come in and they have relationships with them, but it's really about this pair and. It, that to me, the celebration of that and the and the fact that people see not just us, but the cast as a whole, this ensemble cast, as yeah. really relying on each other. There is no piece of it that works on its own without the rest of us, where we just mm-hmm. all depend on each other for the comedy, for the warmth, and that we got recognized on uh, at the SAG Awards for Best Ensemble cast was icing on the cake. But the whole yeah. season has been has blown me away that not just that the critics like it and that is recognized. I watch shows that the critics love, not people, people on the street don't necessarily watch Blackbird or Severance or some of these incredible shows that I've been seeing, but everybody, even the people interviewing us tells, they tell us how much they love us and how much their mother, their kids, their grandmother, Elizabeth Banks grabbed me at the, before the, uh, the Oscars party to say, oh my God, I love you. I love your show. I watch with my nine-year-old son. I'm telling you, Jinx, that means everything to all of us. And to, yeah. to too, that people are watching together as a family. It's It's been incredible. I will say that, and then I'll shut up. The last <laughs> award show that I presented at, because I, uh-huh. I keep, I'm, I'm very happy to be asked to present all these awards to Cheryl. to, <laughs> And the last one, I'm like, that's an ally. I just hand them awards. Just <laughs> right, left, and I'm like, take it, girl. Here's your flowers. <laughs> but I gave an award to Quint at the Publicist Award. And when she, she got it and then she spoke and sat down and we won, our show won for whatever it was. I don't know why we won Best Publicity Campaign, I guess. <laughs> and people were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like the attitude in the room was like, yeah, right, Abbott. And I said, she sat down, I went, are you getting the feeling in the room that people are like over us winning? And she was like, yep, yep. that's what I was telling you. You can't win so much at the beginning because then people get tired of it. Yeah. But I'm like, well, yeah, I have to be nominated. That's one of those good problems to have. Yeah. Um, winning <laughs> too too much. Um, well, I have a theory. I've been talking a lot about this and I have a theory. Uh, well, first of all, I have to echo what you were saying. Abbott Elementary is one of those shows that like, I, I live in a house with, oh my gosh, I three other people and one lives in a tiny house in the backyard. I love this. I've always lived in a, um, I've always lived in a big, full house. Right. And um we've got friends coming over all the time mm-hmm. and one show that we can put on that everyone can agree on is Abbott Elementary. Aww, and you <laughs> and um <laughs> it's because I my theory is after being in the pandemic and all of us being stuck at home mm-hmm. and we're all just we're getting our news from social media. We're getting, we're on our phones constantly or our computers or our devices constantly because what else are you going to do? And it just became abundantly clear how much we're being lied to by 
the powers that be, by everyone, (laughs) by the government, by capitalists, by people who are supposed to be the ones like making our lives better, are the ones lying to us the most. And and we're just so sick of bullshit. And I think that authenticity is really ringing clearly and people want authenticity right now. And that's why I think talent is being celebrated and why, you know, the people who are being celebrated right now are being celebrated because they're damn good at their jobs and probably are so damn good because they've been overlooked by the industry for so long that they had to work harder and harder to to have a place in the industry. And so now that the industry is giving you roles and uh, like you're talking about, like celebrating a friendship between two older women, um, it's just like, it's amazing that when people take a chance and take a swing and say, maybe the world does want to see women being celebrated. This is exactly what I've been saying. It's like you're you were reading the the missive I wrote in. I think it was 2006 or something. I wrote a, a piece called "Where Have All the Funny Women Gone," and mm. it was really started because I kept seeing movies that were male centric, and mm-hmm. a lot of times it was you know white male centric, you know best buddies movies, and then there'd be a funny girl in it. And the funny girl in it was a model, but they were like, but she's a funny one. It's like, just because yeah. you wrote her three lines that were supposed to be a joke. Listen, <laughs> well, I'm talking about movies starring Bette Midler and Goldie Hawn and Whoopi Goldberg mm-hmm. and all the movie stars, the female movie stars that we had when I was growing up that were the, the biggest stars in the business, besides like the male action stars, were mm-hmm. these funny female movie stars. Barbara Streisand. Yeah. Like, what happened to those movies and those women, right? Did we just decide we don't need them anymore? We don't like to be seen and represented? Then they did. I know what it was. It was right after the um, um, First Wives Club came out. Mm. And I remember I was standing at Annie Potts' house talking to the the writer. And she was like, you need to do another one of these. You need to do one <laughs> for us. And I was like, yeah, yeah, do another one. And he was like, yeah, we'll see. The biz as much money as that movie made, and it made a lot of money. They, I guess, decided, and eh, that's a one-off. We don't need to do that again. They do yeah. a movie starring an absolute unknown in my big fat Greek wedding. And Nia Bardalos put together this incredible little love letter to us swarthy ethnics. That not didn't just speak to Greek people. It spoke to people all over the world. That was one of the yeah. biggest money-making movies in the history of cinema. Because I remember I did the, we we were looking at the, you know, in order of the top 100 or whatever. And it was something like in the top 20 for years and years. Some other movies have come along now and it's bounced it out. Mm-hmm. But that movie cost how much to make? It was like yeah. couch change to make. And they yeah. made a gazillion dollars. But then they, <laughs> they look at it. And they go, ah, we don't need to do that again. So I think what's really smart is when the numbers cruncher people, the people that follow the algorithms and the whatever their charts are, they get out of their own way, get their head out of their butts and start doing what people actually are are wanting to see. Uh, Or at least just, an, as you said, an authentic voice. One of the reasons that people respond to Abbott is that we feel like family to them. We yeah. feel like family. Another oh, result absolutely. of the pandemic 
is that people were so separated that what they want is warmth and yes. feeling loved, even if they're the other. That's my son walking past. <laughs> okay. I have so many children. Um, <laughs> I live in a shoe. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to call the herd. Do I start with you? <laughs> do they have a little routine that they do for company introducing themselves? I don't know. Simon, do you have a routine? Come over here and introduce yourself to the <laughs> one and only fabulous Jinx Monsoon. What, like the sound of music? Yeah. Yeah, that's what Hello, I was thinking. Farewell. Can you say I have no pomp and circumstance. Sing a little something. You no. My box of rain. <laughs> Sing. God damn it. Dance, monkey. So let's talk more about authenticity. You have four Hang kids. On one second. Okay. Seriously though, can you be quiet? This is a this is like a real professional podcast. No, I love this. This is part of Talking it. This around is... making a, an uncrustable in the kitchen. Listen, we we have the context now. We know what those noises are. It's fabulous. Okay. So, um, sorry, listen. sorry, Jinx is on the end. <laughs> I love it. Horrible. This is part of why this is what I want. Just uh, just conversations. It's real life. Um, it is real life. Yeah. So anyway, have, I think that it's the family aspect of it and the fact that we actually look like we enjoy each other. And, yeah. and she hired nice people too, Quinta. Everybody on our in our crew, everybody in the cast, we're all nice. So yeah. I think people feel that. And that's what isn't that what we all want? For God's sakes, for five minutes <laughs> in this world. James. Can we just be nice for a little bit? Can you um, just goddamn be nice? <laughs> you have four kids, and I saw in my notes that, that you're. <laughs> and in my notes, I saw that your grandmother gave birth to twelve children on her kitchen table because she didn't want to go to the hospital. So, well, they wouldn't you... really have her. I mean, she had no money. She's <laughs> a little Italian immigrant in in Little Italy in in New York, and uh, you know that's what you did. <laughs> You had the baby on the kitchen table. I mean, <laughs> we're, I'm, we're, I'm sure that by number 11 and 12, they just walked out. They just... <laughs> Where did you have your kids? Did you follow in the family tradition? I did not have them on a kitchen table. I went to the hospital like a, like a good little third generation American. Um, the, fir the first two were born in Jersey because I lived in, in first in Jersey city and then in summit, New Jersey. And then, um, the other, the twins, I have identical boy twins, born mm -hmm. on, the, that was one of them that you just met. And they were born on the same day as the twins in the parent trap. Oh, yeah. Yeah, on October 11th. And they were born out here in, in LA, down in Santa Monica. Did you think that was some kind of omen or something? Or yeah, something I actually called, I, I called Nancy Myers and I was like, what kind of text did you put on me? <laughs> I'm gonna now I'm going to live out the, the parent trap. Yeah, and they were identical <laughs> twins. That's weird. Yeah, well, you should have you should have sent one off. I did see see point. see if he finds his way back. <laughs> well, I absolutely should have divorced their dad at birth. <laughs> I did. I would you sucked it up for another four and a half years? <laughs> would you say, um, being a mother yourself, um, would you say that that plays into the character that you play? Does it give you a vested interest in doing a show? about the welfare of children um, in the school system, the American public school system, which we know is flawed. And um, the show Abbott Elementary deals with 
a school in a disenfranchised, marginalized district. So um, would you say that that, uh, being a mother yourself, does that motivate you in the show, in either your performance or kind of um, any kind of responsibility you might feel acting in this show? You know, the truth is that I've been a mother for as long as I've been an adult. I, I started banging out kids right out of college. Apparently it was something I was very good at. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> I got, I went to New York, you know, I'd been doing theater in DC and I moved for a short while up to Cape Cod to make enough money to my boyfriend and I boyfriend at the time. Um, the joke, the joke line is I have two ex-husbands. The first one, lovely Jewish man. It turned out we had too much in common. He also liked men. <laughs> Second one was a cheater, which is not technically a religion, but he practiced it like it was. Um, and I had the two kids for each. But I started so young having kids. And when Sam and I moved to New York, um, I was doing off-Broadway theater. I was That's what I figured I'd be doing the rest of my life. I immediately got pregnant and <laughs> had my son. And... I started, I started doing stand-up when he was about a little over a year old. I didn't see any mothers on TV. The only women that I saw, I mean, growing up, I saw Joan Rivers, who didn't often talk about being a mother. She talked about being a wife. And um, Phyllis Diller, I remembered on TV. And then Roseanne, sort of mm-hmm. right before I got pregnant. And I didn't really, in, in the comedy that world that I was doing, I didn't see a lot of female uh, I didn't see a lot of women talking about what it was really like to be from our generation and do the plate spinning act of you have to do it all. Not like it's a question. Do you want to do it? You have to do it all. You have to raise a family, find a cure for cancer, have a flat stomach. Like you can't pick one. You have to do everything perfectly. And I said, this is the life experience of every woman I know from my generation. Mm-hmm. And where is that? Where is that represented in comedy or on TV? And so I was really clear about the the stand-up that I was doing, which then translated into offers to do TV shows. And that's what I did in my TV shows was do that character. So everything I've done with my comedic voice, with my writing or with acting has been with being a working mother in mind because that's how I identify. In fact, it's weird on Abbott. It's the first thing I've done where I don't feel like I I have kids. Mm-hmm. Makes mm-hmm. sense. Like even in even in the Parent Trap, I those kids were her kids as far as mm-hmm. Lisa, the actress, was concerned. I think the reason mm-hmm. why people respond to that scene that I do when she says, "I am Annie," right? How do mm-hmm. you know about Annie? I am Annie, and that response that I give her is because the acting work that I was doing, we did that seventy-two takes of that scene mm-hmm. for over the course of three days, and every time I would go into an emotional place in my prep of what it was like when I would have to go on the road as a stand-up and leave my daughter who was I had to go back to work when she was less than a month old because we had just bought a house and I had mortgage payments and I was the money maker in the family my my ex stayed home with kids so I would have to leave her for a weekend or five days or six days and then come home and just smell her head I could smell her (laughs) When I walked in the front door of the house, I smelled her like the animals that we are. And I would just grab her and sniff her all over. And so for me, feeling like what it would be like to be away from my mine, my children for 11 years, that's what 
that character was doing in, in Chessie. So mothers in particular always respond to that scene. And yeah. it, they say, oh, it makes me cry. And I'm like, it makes me cry when I watch it. I manipulate my own damn self because it <laughs> because it's real. And it comes from a place of like what it, what it's like when you're worried about your kids and you miss your children. I mean, obviously in a bizarre situation in the parent trap that doesn't, hopefully doesn't happen in life. But in terms of the responsibility- I <laughs> You had the chance, Lisanne. You had the chance to make it happen and- what are you talking about on the parent trap? I know the guy yeah. was right there. I'm like, what's wrong with her? Um, oh no, I meant with you. I was still going back to you parent trapping your own twins. I'm oh yeah, still that's stuck right. That. I should have said them on. Uh, You're right. right. Um, in terms of school these days and the responsibility, I mean, listen, we all should be a little more responsible to the craziness that's going on. Absolutely, and that means, ladies and gents running for school board because there are people that are making decisions about what's going on in your kid's school that have no good goddamn business making decisions about anything, much less your children's education, which is why you're seeing books getting ripped off shelves and all sorts of other craziness that uh, should not be any part of our, of how we are choosing to educate our children. But it's just about being involved, which is part of that is my, my work in television and in entertainment. And the other part is my work as a full-time uh, hate tweeter, political hate yeah. tweeter. No, I, I, I mean, I've been an activist my entire <laughs> life. So I, I dedicate a lot of my activity to doing that. And sometimes my acti- my activism is in the form of what I say on the stand-up stage, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, oh, <laughs> hell Yes. I only recently started doing, okay, well, every time I say this, people point out, well, you've kind of been doing stand-up your whole career because that's what I do as a drag queen. But I recently started doing traditional, you know, like comedy club stand-up. And oh my God, is that one of the most fun jobs I've ever done. Just like, and when when you're vibing with the audience Mm -hmm. and when you can feel the palpable energy and they're all like, going with you on whatever train of thought you're on. And then once I love, this has always been my motto. My favorite teacher at acting school said 50 minutes of comedy for every 10 minutes of tragedy. (laughs) And that's like always how I've written my, my shows. I want it to be funny, 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 real, Funny, funny, and. Well, listen, first of all, you're 100% right, and I've seen your show, so I know how effective it is that messaging happens. I will say the most effective messaging happens when you're being funny, because there's a reason why the court jester was the only one that could get away with calling the king out on his crap. Mm. You you can say you've got no clothes if you're funny in the messaging and not be beheaded, right? So people can hear messages about what might be really messed up about their their politics or whatever they're, we're all living in. If it's wrapped up in funny, then you can yeah. hear it and you can take it in and you can, you know, the message works a little bit better. But I, I know in the stand-up, first of all, best job in the world. You're absolutely right. People are always yeah. like, oh my God, I could never. Well, that's there's a reason for that. The biggest <laughs> fear for most people, biggest fear over death is public speaking. And for me, I'm like, it's a big deal. Give me a mic. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things. I don't care. If you just, if it's who you are, Yes, it's, it's it's second nature. It is your nature. It is yeah. your nature to be the amplifier, to be the mm-hmm. voice 
maybe for yourself or for an unrepresented group, but it yeah. is absolutely your, if that is who you are, then I think it is your, it is your blessing and your burden that you got to take it on. <laughs> yeah. Because it can be scary. Like, I don't know if you write all your stuff ahead of time and then you tangent off in the room when the, when it's vibing, hopefully you yeah. it. Yeah, pretty much. That. Yeah. <laughs> A combination of both. No, no, I, I, I used to be more improv ad libby. Now I'm like full blown. We got to write a script start to finish. Dela kind of brought that out in me. Dela and I have both, you know, I love having a collaborator because she kind of brought more discipline to the way That's I work. You said on stage in the show. I remember yeah. you saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And, I and then I loosen her up a little bit, you know. Right. right. <laughs> but both is important. You know, yeah. you're, when you're writing, like for me, I have an idea. Listen, I had an idea one time. I'm going to do a bit about our cheerleaders from my high school. And I had an audition the next day. This was with the first six months of my stand-up career. And I mm. said, I'm going to do it tomorrow night at Stand Up New York. Mm-hmm. And my ex, Sam, goes, are you sure? It's an audition for Showtime at the Apollo. And I went, nope, I know it's going to work. I see it in my head. I had never done it in front of an audience. Yeah. I went on what was to that day the biggest audition I ever had and got the got the gig. And, <laughs> and that was my first national television spot was on a bit that I had never done in front of an audience. So yeah. sometimes you just... You got to trust your gut. You got to trust your bones. When you feel something in your bones, like more than your gut, because nerves also live in your gut. So sometimes your gut throws you for a loop. But um, when you feel it in your bones, when it feels like nature, like like what you said, then you got to follow that instinct. Yeah. And then the audience will the audience will respond. And then sometimes that audience response will lead you to writing further and then you've got tags and now mm-hmm. stuff you've never said it just came to you in the moment if you're funny oh, person. absolutely because the i always say the work isn't done until you've done it in front of an audience like rehearsal isn't over until you've at least had a group of people watch it right. because sometimes i sometimes a joke's right in front of me mm-hmm. and i don't even see it until the audience leads me to it with their energy and their response you That's know a great way to put it I want to talk about um, season two, episode 11, Readathon. Oh. This is a very significant episode for you. Mm. Um, I just rewatched it. First of all, um, you're frozen on my screen. You are just gorgeous. Oh, thank you. You are just gorgeous. With my little my hair. Sorry. That's great. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're frozen. You're frozen on my TV screen. Oh, thank God. You're, thank God. You you're gorgeous. Okay. Right first of all, you're gorgeous right now. Your eye makeup is impeccable and I'm going to be copying it. But um, no, it's uh, you're just so lovely. You know, it's a very diverse cast mm-hmm. um, in, in demographics, in archetypes, in... Mm-hmm. Um, backgrounds mm-hmm. and body types and everyone's just so hot <laughs> we're, we're a good looking group you know it's we a very good other. looking group when we when we dress up you know for the for the yeah. shows we look around and go yeah all right yeah. <laughs> yeah. um so talk a little bit about what was significant uh about this episode for you 
Well, readathon was um, a brilliant idea. It's based on um, some of the writers in the room that had struggled, and and Quinta gave it to me to play, which I was so grateful for. Of a little girl in Melissa's class who's been struggling with reading during, you know, schools have this thing like read a hundred books. And every time you have a book, you write it down and then they have a contest. And it's really just to get kids interested in reading. But in the case of this little girl who was struggling with reading, it kind of had the opposite effect. She was lying about how many books she read because she didn't want to say she was having trouble. And she had um, newly new immigrant parents that it was very important to them the way it is for a lot of parents, but You'll mm-hmm. see sometimes in in recent immigrant parents, I, it was like that in my family, that the the original, you know, the what the joke version is that the immigrant parents come over here and work manual jobs, you know, work their butts mm-hmm. off so that the next generation can go to college, so that the third generation can can take improv class. Apparently, <laughs> it's the way it goes. Um, but the but these recent immigrant parents don't are are uncomfortable hearing that their daughter might be in need of some help in the reading department. And you come to find out that Mrs. Schmenti, my character, um, was had a big problem with dyslexia growing up and w- was made to feel stupid and was teased by the other kids and that she was given a, a book by a teacher that helped her figure out how to unscramble the words and, mm-hmm. and how to look at the words and have them make sense. And she gives that book to this little girl. And um, and she says, you know, this is you don't reading doesn't have to be a chore or a burden. It's supposed to be fun. And I I learned to have fun with reading. In fact, I, I, I wanted to become a teacher afterwards and she just shares with the kid. And it's a really beautiful uh-huh. scene with this little girl. But it's also one of the moments where you see the softer side of, of Melissa Schmenti, who quite often is very busy covering vulnerability <laughs> yeah. with wise assery. Yeah, yeah. The way we do, you know, I mean, I, I, that's the part of it that I recognized a lot. I never had a problem with reading. I was a really good reader. But the wise assery in the comedy was to cover the vulnerability that I had because I was the chubby kid in our school. Yeah. And I was teased mercilessly. Back then, they didn't have any protections for different body types or, or against teasing, like, you know. It was open season on anybody who was different. Yeah. So, and it also in those days, by the way, the fat kid was 10 pounds heavier. It was, yeah. weren't, there weren't a lot of kids that were even a little bit heavier. So it was, it was, uh, it was a lot and it helped shape a dynamic for me as feeling other. And like, I have to, oh, lots of things be, be overly sexual. You know, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of things that we do in order to be louder funnier mm-hmm. just to make up for the fact that it's hurtful what people yeah. say so oh, yeah i mean half of my mannerisms come from you know having to go through the uh american public school system it's like first i suppressed them then i realized i couldn't suppress them then i had to lean into them because yes at least if people like me for being the funny flashy gay guy then you know, and this is back when I was trying to be a boy, trying to pass as a as a boy. But um, but I had to lean into being 
you know, the the yeah, over the top flouncy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because that kept me safe, actually. A hundred percent. And it kept you safe emotionally because it was your choice and it Absolutely. was your character. And again, I mean, listen, we had this was unusual for for these days, for those days, I should say, back when I was coming up in, in high school in the late 70s, early 80s, it was unusual to have out gay guys. I, I don't remember. I, I knew all the girls that were gay in our school. We knew who they were. One was mm -hmm. my best friend that I grew up with. And I remember she came out to me. We were going down to tracks in D.C. for to celebrate mm -hmm. her birthday. We were 18. And she was like, you know, I'm gay. And I've been yeah, to tracks in D.C. Yeah, of course you remember tracks in D.C. <laughs> of course you do. Um, it was the best club. It was so much fun. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, I'm, I'm gay. And I went, I know. Like, I, I've known our whole life. I've known. Like, you don't even have to tell me. But it was unusual for gay guys to be out. We had two guys that were um, that were dancers. And mm. one, one was my friend, Wayne, who was um, who was tall and he was a great dancer. He actually wound up teaching at Alvin Ailey. And I only one time in the history of our high school did anybody try anything with him, like step mm. to him and start trying to, you know, cause trouble. And Wayne kicked the shit out of him. I think it was like a, a grandpa, just a jeté, you know. I <laughs> kicked the crap out of this guy under his chin, and nobody ever stepped to Wayne again. But they, but they were famous in our school and, and loved because they were so talented. They were such talented dancers yeah. in all of our shows and everything that everybody, nobody had had issue. But, but that was unusual. I didn't know of anybody else that. Um, it's so, it's so. That was my same experience in high school. Like, um, like thirty years later, you mm. know, my same experience was <laughs> some guy tried to steal my umbrella. He thought it was his friend's umbrella and that I had stolen it. Mm. And then um, he took it from me and he pressed me up against the wall and he was pushing me really hard against the wall. And then I kicked the umbrella out of his hand and I grabbed it and walked away and um, called him a jackass. And then word got back to his girlfriend. And since all the girls loved me because I was, like I yeah. said, you know, mm -hmm. the the sassy gay best friend, mm -hmm. she, she chewed him out. And then word spread about that. And then guys just left me alone. But I also had done a tap dance at a school assembly for student body president or whatever. I can't remember what it was. But I feel like very early in life, I said, you know, you can bully me, but it's not going to make me stop. And I think people kind of grew tired, grew bored of trying to bully me because it wasn't suppressing yeah. me at all. No, but that doesn't mean it, it was that fun. Mean, it yeah, was it painful that, to go through, but yeah, that's how I did it. <laughs> did not have the desired result because they were not going to shame you from being who you are and who you are meant to be. I mean, listen, yeah. there's so much shit going. There's so much stuff that should not be happening. I mean, from reproductive rights to what we're doing in some of the states around uh, around drag, it's just, it's, I mean, that's the stuff that I haven't compelled to talk about on stage. In fact, yeah. it's my opener. I'll, I'll yeah. talk about like, I, yeah, I love the parent trap too. If you're a big fan, thank you. But I'm not, I'm not Jesse. If you come over, I'll cook for you. But I'm going to make you one thing. I'm not whipping up everything we got. <laughs> if you're a fan of Abbott, I also love Melissa Schmenti, but I'm not her. I, uh, I do know a guy. But I am. Not, <laughs> but I'm not going to watch my lang my salty language at work because fuck that shit. 
So like, then then I'll go. And if you're the, if you're the governor of Tennessee or Florida, just know that uh, even though I wear too much makeup and hike my tits up, I'm not a drag queen. So my overtly sexual material is perfectly safe for you. (laughs) Do not be alarmed. Oh, it's so asinine. The hypocrisy is so blatant, but I, I, it's, it's just so, it's so crazy, but I feel, I feel uh, the craziest thing to me right now is the dichotomy in which we live, where some uh, people are so adamant to deny people the right to be themselves and so adamant that guns aren't a problem. But then we also live in a world right now where Abbott Elementary exists and women are being celebrated. And, and I mean, drag race is a phenomenon, you know? Like, it's, Love this, it. it's this crazy time to be alive, but I feel better knowing there are people like you being celebrated. And um, you talked about you know, your childhood experience. And then I have in my notes that you mentioned that Cheryl has a, um, uh, a body positivity rule on set, no negative body talk on set. Yeah. And well, at least just for me, I don't know if she said it. Oh, it's for you. Oh, just for you. (laughs) And I will will say this with, with uh, quite a bit of um, assuredness that I do not hear the, uh, the black women in the show, our main cast, I should say, I, I've mm. never heard them speak that way about themselves. Never. There is mm. always a real, um, not, I mean, it's not like every day, every single one of my castmates walks on stage going, damn, I look good. I don't. Yeah. Um, but there <laughs> is, but there is definitely a cultural significance about, about, really enjoying the body that you're in and being happy with it and maybe working on something a little bit here and there. But I know that from my, culturally, the white women I grew up with were trained to always talk about how fat they were and Mm -hmm. how they needed to work out and that they needed to lose 10 pounds and that, oh, if I could only, oh, but my thighs, oh, but my arms are hanging. Look at this. Isn't this awful? I never heard anything except a negative even for women that were, but from from my viewpoint, perfectly built, yeah. they were trained to self denigrate, to be yeah. to be self, uh, not self effacing. What's the word I'm looking for? Deprecating. Deprecating is a good word. <laughs> Deprecating, um, which sounds a lot like defecating, and the <laughs> because if you crap on yourself. If that's your, if that's what you learn, that's how you feel. That's like casting a spell on yourself. You know, like I always say mantras are like casting a spell. And when you repeat something, if you think, if you look at the, if you look at the like self-help aspect of it, of trying to, you know, pep yourself up when you're having a hard time, but there's also a scientific aspect of it that when you, you know, like, reprogram your brain Mm -hmm. to think positively about yourself. You feel positively and you exude that positive energy because it's starting from the inside, you know? It's like quantum physics. It really is. I wrote about it in in my book. If you you start with the theory 
You know, I, ooh, I'm glowing today. Look at, ooh, my, mm-hmm. my ass looks snacky in these pants. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that's what it looks like. And yeah. if, you, if you ask anybody, I mean, first of all, we put way too much pressure on ourselves to be a certain thing. Because anywhere mm-hmm. in the course of history, you will look at what is the, the attractive thing. It varies culture to culture. It varies yeah. place to place. And, t- and throughout the millennia, you know, if you... If you lived 100 years ago, maybe you were supposed to be, well, 100 years ago would have been the 20s. So, yes, a very straight up and down boy figure is how they were dressing people. But any other time besides that, very much the, a, a curvy shape. And yeah. sometimes I can't tell you how many times friends of mine have been like traveling in Greece or something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And there's uh, there's <laughs> pictures of naked intersex people. So like femme women with a penis. Right. And they send it to me and they say, this is what your body looks new. like naked. <laughs> this, is, this is what you look like. And I'm like, see, I've always existed. A hundred percent. And also in India, there's a whole mm-hmm. intersex community that is celebrated as being yeah. like somehow magical. And because you're you're having the sort of, I guess, best, best of both worlds, right? So mm-hmm. it just really depends on where you are and to listen yeah. to anybody else about what you're supposed to look like just makes no sense. You know, life's too short to let someone else tell you how you're supposed to feel about yourself. Yeah. And, you know, you were speaking about cultural differences. And I have to imagine speaking as a queer person, I know that one of the big reasons why gay pride exists so that we are redirecting the narrative we've been told by society, you mm. know? So I have to imagine people from marginalized communities who have been told by media and society that there's something wrong with the way that they look because they are not a skinny white, white person, one person, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. Of course, they're, the, it, the, the antidote to that is celebration. A hundred percent. And you can listen, even within... Looking at the the black women who have a beautiful shape that is, uh, was, and black is not monolithic. I mean, there are people that are shaped a certain way from Ethiopia. And then you look at from other areas out of Africa, it's a completely different shape and body type. And I've watched people get um, sort of, well, not from my show, I'll be very clear about this, but in other shows, having hair and makeup people be frustrated and say, like, well, I can't do that here. You have to come in with your hair done. We're trying to change that at the union, by the way, mm-hmm. to make sure mm-hmm. that everybody's got, of all hair textures and all skin colors, everybody is cared for. But even in wardrobe, like, I don't know how to dress that body because it's a tiny waist and a, a large, you know, rear or, you know, th- healthy, thick thighs and they're absolutely admired within the, the culture. And yet they're being told there's something wrong with it. And it's not even different for men. I mean, in gay culture, there is quite, uh, there was for years, a big push to be thin, to be in shape yeah. and muscular or very thin. And then I look at people like Daniel Francesi and Harvey who are saying, we, we come in all shapes too. And I am sexy yeah. the way I am. Absolutely. And, and they're winning the game. Yeah.
I do have some compulsory questions that Uh-oh. I ask okay. every guest of mine, and you can answer them however you feel like answering them. Um, first question is, who is your celebrity crush today? That's a good one. <laughs> you know, what, who are you trying to tell me, Dustin? <laughs> Game of Thrones guy? Oh, Matt Smith, that guy? Yeah, that's get, that's Matt Smith. Yes. Yeah, he's from the Dragon. Yeah. He's not my crush. My crush is, I just took a picture with him. Um, I, I, I am a big fan of Sam Hewen from, from the uh, Outlander series, the Redhead, the, the okay. Scotsman. I like everything about him. First of all, I will say on a personal note that when I was going, I, I, every year I speak at the Women's March here in Los mm-hmm. Angeles. And a couple of times when I was going down there, he wished me good luck or I post a little piece and he was he was very um, complimentary about it. And he had, there were people in from his fan base that were like, don't be political. I'm like, it's a Women's March. How is that? Yeah. You're making it political because you're dumb. <laughs> But yeah. it's like it's for all of our rights, you just like to vote against your own rights. So but anyway, I like that about him, but I also love his accent and my God, what a body. <laughs> Do you have an affinity for fellow redheads? Not, not normally, not normally. I don't, uh, I, I don't think I pick by, by virtue of like hair color. Hair color. <laughs> That's good. Why? Who's yours? <laughs> My celebrity crush today would be Luke Gage. Um, yeah, because I, I don't know. He's just been popping up in my feed a lot. And he just seems like he's having a great time. He seems like he'd be someone really fun to just like, I hate going to parties, but I'd go to a party with him. Okay. So that's why he's my answer. Okay. My next question for you is, yeah. are you spiritual? Oh, yeah. I'm really spiritual. Mm-hmm. I think I'm... I'm spiritual the way Catholics are when they kind of <laughs> magical thinking part of it. Like I, yeah. I was on the phone with my other twin earlier and he was talking to me and his earbud popped out and I said, okay, hang on. And I said a prayer to St. Anthony. I said, you find it? And he went, yes. I was like, well, <laughs> so you're welcome to St. Anthony. Listen, my mom, grandma and aunt, I grew up in a family. We were holiday Catholics. We were always, you know, we weren't, big at the church or anything. Right. But as more and more came out about the Catholic church and mm. thing, you know, the abuse and the covering mm. up, my grandma said she couldn't be a part of the Catholic church anymore. That's actually something I found out on this podcast wow. um, with my mom wow. <laughs> when I had my mom on as a guest, but uh, yeah. um, that, and you know, like it, it was uh past uh i know that things have changed since then but you know like mm-hmm. homophobia and the church and all that kind of stuff so my grandma just felt like she couldn't yeah you know be a part of the church anymore but catholicism was what she knew but all three of my mom uh, three all three of them were just like complete witches 
They just used Catholicism as their spells and their magic because there's a lot of magical realism of and Catholicism. Of course there is. That's, I mean, that to me is the most hysterical thing about the, the Sicilian part of it too, which mm. is that there's, like, you put Molochios on people, that's a straight up calling the devil <laughs> to curse someone. And then if you if somebody does curse you or you think they have, you have to walk around them and say this magical spell in Sicilian. Like, yeah. there's a whole lot of magical thinking going on. And a hundred percent with you on the whole church stuff. What, what sort of gave me a little bit of hope just in terms of mm-hmm. whether you're, you don't have to go to the church and believe what they believe. Totally. Any, any, um, any, any religion. religion you're allowed to, to celebrate and practice anything the way that you choose. And yes. you're allowed to my, take aspects from right. one. So my mother used <laughs> to say, she used to say, Jesus said three things. He said, love God as you love yourself and love your neighbor. Right, do as to, unto your neighbor as you would have them do to you. Everything else, man wrote. She was like, <laughs> leave all these rules that they put down and this and that. Some person decided that, so I don't have to listen. Any, and they also told her after she got divorced, you can't come back to the church and receive communion. Or you can't. No, they said you can't ever marry again because in the eyes of the church, you're still married. And I remember I went to the priest of our my sons went to Catholic school because we live in Los Angeles. And it was cheaper than sending them to private school. I'm like, uh-huh. yeah, I'm a parishioner. Let's send them to Catholic <laughs> school. And the priest said, she went to the wrong priest, told her to come talk to me. And the day that he said in mass, we were there for Easter. The day he said, everyone is welcome in this parish. Everyone is welcome in this church. If you're gay, if you're straight, everyone is welcome. I, I broke my strict no tweeting during mass rule. And I tweeted that out. And then the Pope was saying, everyone is welcome at church. And you cannot... Um, keep people out because they're gay and that's wrong. And I was like, yeah, finally, because all I know is when I went to Catholic University of America, the seminary where they were training the priests was the busiest gay Mecca in the entire (laughs) school. And all of the master students, the gay master students from the drama department were living over there because it was a nonstop party. So don't try (laughs) telling me any of your crap. Um... (laughs) My final question for you is, what's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, it is, um, it is, oh God, my ex-husband used to love when I sang it. Let's in bad mood, waiting for train. For train. Oh, it's me and Bobby McGee. It's faded as my cheese. I sing that all the time at karaoke. That's when my... If yeah. I can't belt that night, I sing that one. Yeah, well, because you can ultimately belt at the end, but you really can be raspy and it doesn't matter. You can screlt it. You can yeah. scream belt it. Yeah. Scream belt it. <laughs> that one, that and come to my window. Melissa Etheridge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lisa Ann Walter, you are just, ah. When I met you after the after the Jinx the and Dale holiday, holiday show, night. you were just everything... There's nothing like meeting someone you admire and they're exactly what you hope they'd be. They're exactly the person you were like, oh, I hope they're like this. You were sweet. You were complimentary. You were funny. You were brassy. You were body. Everything I love about you and other female performers like you. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. Oh, <laughs> it was such a pleasure. And I I mean all those compliments. I think that you are absolutely 
absolutely sensational. I'm sorry I didn't get to see you on Broadway. It is it's oh, my goal to come and see you when you are starring in your next big show, as I know you listen. Know. Listen, remember what we said. It's a good problem to have. It's the problem of abundance. I've been saying this to anyone who couldn't make it. I've I've had such a fun, good year. There's no reason to be upset if one person can't see one thing because there's been a lot of things, okay? Yeah, listen, we'll be on the same stand-up stage together and who knows the movie or, or TV show. I would love that. Let's manifest it. Okay. Thank you so much, Lisa Ann. Have a great rest of your night. You too. Bye, honey. Bye, Bye. Jinx. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to Hi, Jinx, here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have new episodes every Wednesday, so make sure to search for Hi, Jinx on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at the Jinx on Instagram or at Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. And I'll see you next Wednesday for some more hijinks. Maybe if I start talking like Catherine O'Hara, that'll manifest her coming on my podcast. <laughs>you listen to Hi Jinx one day early and ad free, sign up for Mom Plus at mompodcasts.plus. Hi Jinx is produced by Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, and produced by Joseph Shepard. Editing and sound design by Will Pitts, executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Big Dipper, and Joe Cilio. <laughs>